Well, good morning again. I'm Dion. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to be here with you. And uh, I'm just so encouraged today to hear how God continues to move in his church. You know, we're celebrating Reformation this weekend and how 500 years ago God did a renewed work in his church. And it's so encouraging to be here to meet, for me to hear how God is still working in his church. A couple of weeks ago, we, we had an inspired weekend where we talked about how God is moving in his church. I love what God is doing in St. Paul's in College Hill. I'm so honored that we get to play a small part in that. It's pretty incredible. But here's what I know. God also wants to move in you today. So let's ask for that in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who continually moves, you continually act, that you are for us not against us. And you don't want to take anything from us. Instead, you want to give us true wholeness, true fullness, life now and forever. Thank you for that. Father, we pray today that that you would open us up, that you'd make us vulnerable and open and ready to receive a word that we all need, that I know I need, that that we as a community need. So Father, um, I pray that you would open us up to that and do something life-changing, transforming within us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this week, there were some um, female members of my family, the ladies in my family up in Michigan. They participated in something historic. It started when they got dressed up like this. These are four generations of my family, my grandmother, my mother, my sisters, and uh, one, of my, uh, one of my nieces. And, uh, and they got dressed up like this, and some of you can kind of see what this, this costume is. It's, they're dressed up like, do you know? Rosie the Riveter, yep, from the 1940s um, poster. And what they did is they got dressed up like this, and then they gathered with almost 2,100 other women who were dressed like this to do something historic. Now, this wasn't a Halloween thing. Actually, what they were doing is they were gathering to break a Guinness Book of World Records record for the most Rosie the Riveters gathered in any one place. Now, you never knew there was such a record. But, um, but what makes this really interesting is not just some obscure record. It's the location where this picture was taken. See, this picture was taken at the Willow Run bomber plant. What was the Willow Run bomber plant? Which played a significant role in us winning World War II and uh, was, was just a bustling center of vitality and production back in the 1940s. Let me explain it this way. Back in World War II, uh, when a lot of that war was fought you know, in the air with bomber planes, it took a full month to build a B-24 Liberator bomber from the ground up. And that's how they were being built out in California. From the ground up, it took a month to build one. And that just wasn't enough for the war. And so Henry Ford and some of his engineers, they got together. And uh, in this space, this is the end of the, uh, the assembly line, they made a mile-long assembly line where they could crank out a B-24 bomber one per hour. In fact, they produced so many bombers every month in this plant that in one month's time, they produced more than, in, than all of Imperial Japan did in a year. Uh, for a while, it was called the Arsenal of Democracy. As, as engineers came together and, and, and they found a better way to make planes, and a whole community was born around this. This is just outside of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Uh, it's just crazy. And so the reason these women gathered at this place is because this uh, was used by GM for a while. They pulled out of it, and they're trying to save the end of this historic place to be used for a a museum to commemorate what went on there and how historical it was. And so that's what that was all about. Now, I think about this, and I think, wow, 70 years ago, the world was a very different place. And those of you who may have been alive 70 years ago, you know that the world is a very different place today than it was 70 years ago. I mean, we've moved from being a manufacturing economy, an agricultural economy, to now being what? A service economy, a professional economy, uh, filled with educators and, and medicine and people who are in the service sector. 
But that's not all that has changed. I mean, just look at how our education has changed in the last 70 years. Back in 1940, 5% of the population got a bachelor's degree. According to census data, in 2010, 28% of the population had a bachelor's degree. Or look at um, edu- or, uh, income, rather. Look at income. Earnings. Back in 1940, if you were a man, the median income for you was $956 a year. If you were a woman, it was about half that, $592 a year. In 2010, that 956 is now 33000 That 592 for women is now 24000 Still a, a pay gap there. I won't get into that. Um, but that's the reality. I mean, you see the explosive increase in our earnings. Or I love this, this one in particular. Just look at our, our household life. Look at how the American household has changed. Back in the 1940s, you could rent a, an apartment uh, in an urban center for $30 a month. Now it's $855 a month. Or you could rent a house for $18 a month. Um, now, of course, the median cost for a house is closer to $1,500 a month. Um, back in the 1940s, if you were in a, a rural area, 90, or I'm sorry, 78% of people had an outside toilet. Only 17% had running water. Of course, nowadays, 99.4% of us have complete plumbing. Uh, back in the 1940s, 50% of people had a, a car, a single car. Today, it's more like 90% of us who have a car. And um, 57%, almost 60% of us, have more than one car. Two or more, in fact. Um, I love looking at this housing number a little further to look at how housing has changed. It's a lot more expensive, but our houses have gotten significantly bigger. Back in the 1940s, the average house was 983 square feet. And three and a half people lived in the average house. Um, Back in 2010, the average house size was 2,400 square feet. Two and a half times bigger. Plus, we lost a whole person in there somewhere. Only two and a half people are living in those houses. It's just crazy to think about how the world has changed in 70 years. And one thing certainly has changed. We have become significantly more affluent in the last 70 years. But, but here's what's surprising. In the last 70 years of economic growth and the growth of American wealth, the average household becoming wealthier, here's what hasn't happened. We haven't gotten any more happy. In 2012, U.S. News published a study of developed countries, and they ranked them in terms of wealth. And guess who was number one on the list for household wealth? United States, number one on the list for household wealth. But when it came to another thing they measured, happiness, we were number 12 on that list, which was surprising for many, that wealth and happiness don't correlate. But take a look at this. This is even more interesting to me. This is some data that compares our gross domestic product, or GDP, per capita since 1946 up through 2010. Um, And you can see, that's the red line here. You can just see it steadily growing over the last um, 70 years or so. That means that over the last 70 years, we have increasingly become more wealthy per capita, our GDP. But there's another line here, and that's this blue line. And this blue line doesn't measure anything economic. This measures our our reported state of happiness. And here's what's fascinating. Over 70 years of steady economic growth, of us becoming wealthier as people in this country, our happiness, it's kind of hard to see, our happiness looks like this. It bounces around up and down, irrespective of what this line is actually doing. Now, how can that be? I mean, how, how can we get... 
become wealthier? How can our lives become better and more comfortable? And how can our affluence be, be moving up so profoundly and yet our happiness is unchanged? Well, there's a professor named Richard Esterlin who studied this back in the 70s. And this whole thing is now called the Esterlin Paradox. Because here's what he found. That for a while, an increase of wealth will make a nation's people happier. When they don't have adequate housing, when they don't have a roof over their head, when people are starving, when there's not access to education or medical care, increasing your wealth really does make your life better. It makes you happier. But there is a point, and and apparently in America, it happened way back here, pre-1940s, there is a point where increased wealth has zero impact on the happiness of a nation. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? In fact, some of us might say that increased wealth might actually have a negative effect on our happiness. I'm haunted by the words from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Words that say this, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Haunting, isn't it? But true. See, in spite of what we've been taught, in spite of what we believe, we should just listen to what our grandma told us, you know, a long time ago. That things won't make you happy. The best things in life aren't things. And yet we all know this, but the reality of our lives is that we still chase after things. We still pursue possessions with a ferocity, with an intensity, more than anything else in our lives. And instead of making us happier, what's happening instead We're finding ourselves stressed out, in debt, broke. We're finding ourselves preoccupied by all the things we now have to manage and care for and repair and clean. We're moving away from contentment. So today we're going to look um, at a story in in Scripture about a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And we're going to look at an encounter he had with Jesus because Zacchaeus, like us, was a man who struggled with wealth and possessions And yet, due to this encounter with Jesus, things in his life begin to change for him. So we're going to look at that today. Um, Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to go. So if you've got a Bible of your own, you can go there. You can take out the Bible here in the room. Uh, Go to page 1052. You can look on your smartphone. Go to YouVersion. um, Or you can look along right here on the uh, flat screen. Now it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Most of Jesus' ministry happened while he was walking. Stuff just happened along the way. He spent a lot of time on the road. So he entered Jericho and he was passing through it. But a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So the first thing we discover about this guy Zacchaeus is not that he was a wee little man. For those of us who grew up in church, we maybe grew up singing that song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Uh, What we discover first about Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus was rich. He was very wealthy. He was a chief tax collector, which meant that he made a lot of money extorting money from his fellow countrymen. He was rich, which means that we've got something in common with Zacchaeus, because we also are rich. Now, I know maybe you don't feel rich today, but but here's the reality of your situation, that even if you make $50,000 a year, you are in the 0.3% of wealthiest people in the world. $50,000 a year, 0.3% of the wealthiest people in the world. Here in our country, we're talking a lot these days as we gear up for another presidential 
uh, election. We're gearing up, we're talking a lot about the disparity between rich and poor in our country, and there is a huge wealth gap in this country. There is. And yet, do you, do you know the reality of all of our bickering? The reality of all of our bickering is we're arguing about people who are within the top 8% of the wealthiest people in the world. So, like Zacchaeus, we're wealthy. Today I'm speaking to, regardless of what your circumstances feel, today I'm speaking to a bunch of people who are wealthy. But watch what happens in Zacchaeus' life. It says, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, so there it is, he was in fact a wee little man. You weren't lied to in Sunday school. Um, because he wanted to see who Jesus was, he, he could not see over the crowd because he's too short. So here's what he does. He runs ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So Zacchaeus is industrious. He uh, decides that since he can't see Jesus on his own, he's going to climb a tree and then he'll be able to see Jesus. Um, so you've got to give him points for industry. But here's what I find interesting about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his great wealth, he is a guy who is not satisfied with life. He's not content. How do I know? Because here he is in his fine clothes, a wealthy guy, climbing a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. See, that's not the picture of a guy who's content, who's satisfied with his life. Zacchaeus is a guy who is searching for something. It's ironic, he has everything, and yet he's still searching for something. And I'm not sure that what Zacchaeus was searching for was religion. I think he was actually just searching for anything. He, he, he wasn't satisfied within himself, and, and, he, and so he was always searching. Does that, does that sound familiar to any of you? I'm just wondering. It certainly does to me. Isn't that just like us? We're, we're people who have everything, but we're always restless, always looking around, always trying to find that next thing that might actually satisfy us, that might finally make us content. And so we upgrade to the iPhone 6S, hoping that we'll do it. And then we drive the, the best cars, you know, we, we just keep stepping it up until we get to the Infiniti or the Audi or... We move to a better neighborhood and a bigger house, better yard, and we wear all the clothes. The clothes are all right. We've got it down. And for some of us, uh, we, we deal, we've got the hair and the nails too. You know, you've got the whole package. You're, you're looking the part, and we've got all the coolest hobbies with the best gear. But we're still searching, aren't we? It's not satisfying. Contentment is elusive. We're still trying to get to the next thing. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't have all that stuff. Maybe you're still rocking the iPhone 4S. And you're driving a Ford, not an Infinity. And, and yet so many of us who are there, we want to be in the other place. And we're still, we're, we too are searching for the next thing, no matter where we are. And we all know that things don't make us happy, but we keep amassing things anyway. Why? I don't know. I don't know if it's because we're all out of other ideas. We don't know what else to do with ourselves. Or, or whether it's when we look at someone who has more, we genuinely believe, we think we see happiness there. We assume that they're happier, even though the data says they're not. They're not. See, the thing that you're looking for isn't going to be found in your next purchase. And you know it. If that were true, then, then kids today would be the happiest people on earth. Because they got everything, right? I look at my kids, they got electronics and they got their own rooms and they've got, you know, like clothes and toys and, and kids today, they're just as unhappy as kids ever. They're bored all the time, right? I mean, 
Kids have been historically bored forever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference, does it? See, Zacchaeus was about to discover what he was missing. And and today I hope you can discover what's been missing in your life too. In all of that searching, in all of that buying, in all of that earning, there's something key that's missing in your life. Take a look at what Zacchaeus found. So he's up in the tree and (laughs) I just love this. Jesus is walking along through town, you know, and, 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 you know, he hears something in the tree and he looks up expecting to see, what, a bird or a squirrel or something. And he looks up and sees this man, Zacchaeus, you know, this rich guy up in his nice clothes in the, in the tree. And he looks up and, and he says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. See, see in that moment, what did Zacchaeus find? He found Jesus, right? More than that. Specifically, what did he find? Zacchaeus found a relationship with Jesus. Zacchaeus found a chance at being restored to relationship with the people around him. Zacchaeus is a guy who had lived his life for wealth. And I already mentioned that as a, as a chief tax collector, the way he got wealthy was by extorting other people. In essence, he became wealthy by stepping on everyone around him. And so he was wealthy, but he was isolated. See, what Zacchaeus found that day was relationship. The thing that he had been missing, a relationship foremost with Jesus, and as we'll see in a minute, relationships with other people. Now, here's what's powerful about this. The Mayo Clinic, and you've all heard of it, the Mayo Clinic has done research on happiness. And they've published research that says there are five things that we can do to make ourselves happier. And uh, we've looked at these five things, and we've used them in part to build this series. It's a five-week series, and you'll see some connection here. Last week, um, we talked about getting right with ambition. And the first thing on their list is that you have to feel a sense of purpose. Right? And, And this is what we talked about last week, that ambition is not bad. Selfish ambition is. See, the Bible warns us against selfish ambition, but nowhere in the Bible will God tell you not to be ambitious. In fact, the Bible is filled with ambitious people. I mean, Jesus himself was ambitious. He had an ambition, and that ambition was he was going to save the world. He was going to do the Father's bidding. That was, a, that was a powerful ambition. See, I thank God for godly ambition and for people who have it. You know, think of Jim and Kathy over there who, who are moving to College Hill, investing in that church, investing in that community, because they've got an ambition. They believe that a community, a neighborhood, can be changed. Right? I mean, thank God for people who have ambition, who dream big dreams, who have a sense of goal. And you need that in your life to be happy. But we talked about that last week. So let, let's move on. See, this week, the, the thing that we'll focus on is, is that to be happy, you've got to devote time to family family and friends. And we'll talk about the rest of these later, but, but here's what makes this so hard for us in our materialistic culture. In a culture where it's all about earning and consuming and buying, so often we don't make time to do the very thing that will bring us happiness, that is to spend time investing in relationships. Just think about how our consuming habits, the, the things that we have in our life, don't bring us together. In fact, they divide us from each other. Right? In our houses, we're all sitting around with our devices in our hands, walking around like this, not acknowledging the people around us. Right? See, the reality of our lives is is that we have replaced this need for relationships, which actually can bring us greater contentment and happiness. We've replaced it for things, and that's a dangerous 
even foolish replacement. See, what Zacchaeus found that day was something that he had been missing for a long time, and that was the power of relationships. First and foremost with God, but also with the people around him. And see, you know this all already. Right? I'm not telling you anything new, am I? People matter more than stuff. Yeah, we know. But why is it so hard to actually live this then? I think the reason is, is because the hold that our possessions have on us is so powerful. It's too powerful for us to easily break it. But what we're going to see with Zacchaeus here in just a second is that when he discovered the power of a relationship with God and, and relationships with other people, he chose to do something in his life that was so decisive, so bold, so crazy that, that I believe what it did was it actually set him free from the grips of materialism. Take a look at what he did next. It says, all the people saw this. You know, they, they saw Zacchaeus up in the tree. They saw Jesus invite him down. They saw Jesus say, we're going to go hang out today, Zacchaeus. They, they witnessed all of this. And so they began to mutter and grumble and gossip. Because good church people never do that stuff, right? Um, no, they don't. And so uh, these people were different, though. They didn't go to church. So they, uh, they began to mutter and gossip. And they said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, this Jesus has. What is he thinking? I mean, Zacchaeus is a crook. He's a rich guy. He's a thief. Like, how could Jesus go to his house? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, now this is powerful, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Do you see this? Half. Half. This is like a bad divorce, isn't it? Half. He says, look, Lord, I will give half, right now, half of my possessions to the poor, but I'm not going to stop there. If I've cheated anyone out of anything, and and you better believe he had, there's no chance that he hadn't cheated a lot of people. That's how tax collectors got wealthy, by cheating. He says, but if anyone comes and brings a claim against me, I will pay them back four times the amount. So in, in just this one encounter, Zacchaeus does something crazy and decisive. He says, look, Lord, right now I'm giving away half. Now, lest you're confused about this, this is not about restitution. About saying, hey, I cheated people, so I need to pay them back. No, 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 that's what the four times thing was. See, in addition to paying back those he's wronged four times the amount, Zacchaeus says, right now I'm divesting myself of half of my wealth. I'm going to give it away to the poor. That's bold. But why? What is this about? Well, frankly, the Bible doesn't say exactly. So it leaves guys like me to wonder and to conjecture. You know, I think maybe Zacchaeus finally discovered that there is a way for you to buy happiness with your wealth. It's just not spending it on things. See, uh, Michael Norton, he's a Harvard business professor, and uh, he has a TED Talk out there with over 3 million views. Um, It's a really powerful talk, 11 minutes. And I've talked about it before. If you haven't watched it, you should watch it. Because he talks about how scientifically they've, they've shown that Money spent, not on yourself, but given away to other people, can make you happier. Money that is used in service to relationships can make you happier. See, I think that's part of what Zacchaeus might have discovered here, is that he had been cheating people, and and in cheating people, he had isolated himself. And so in giving half of his income away, I think Zacchaeus realized that he he could have a jolt of happiness and contentment, like buying stuff for himself would never give. That by giving his money away, by investing in other people, 
he would find something greater. So he gave half of his wealth away that one day. Now notice he didn't give it all away because you still need things to live on. God doesn't want you to give it all away. But he gave away half. Or, or maybe the reason he gave away half, half is because he, he suddenly discovered that money had lost its power. Right? You know how this works in life where, where you've got something that you think is really important to you until something better comes along and, and then that other thing means hardly anything? See, I think it's possible that when Zacchaeus discovered a relationship with Jesus and he remembered that life is ultimately about relationships, money immediately became less important to him. And so it didn't matter. It wasn't like he was, oh my gosh, I'm giving away half of my money. He's like, what do I care about that stuff? It's just weighing me down. Or I wonder if maybe in Zacchaeus' life, what motivated him to give half of his money away is that he was simply making room. Do you know what I mean? See, we, we've got our stuff in life, and we're pursuing more of it, and most of us end up living life like this, you know, with all of this stuff, all of our possessions, and, and we're just, our hands are full, right? We're so holding on to all of our stuff that we, we can't possibly take hold of anything else, and even though this stuff isn't making us happy, it's all we have room for in our lives. We've, we've committed ourselves to our stuff, and so even if God appeared in heaven and said, hey, I want you to take hold of, of, of something that's truly going to make you happy, what are we going to do? We don't have any room in our life for it. See, I think part of what Zacchaeus was doing is saying, I need to get rid of this stuff. I need to make room in my life so that I can take hold of this thing that I've just found that is so much more meaningful. See, whatever he was doing, whatever his motive was, Zacchaeus acts decisively to fight back against his materialism because the the pull of materialism is so sneaky and it's so strong on all of us, on me, on people living 2,000 years ago. Zacchaeus says, I have to do something decisive. And so he does. He gives away half. Now here's what I believe. And I'm not putting pressure on you today, but but I'm just telling you the truth. That if you are going to dump materialism in your own life, if you want to move beyond it to the things that actually matter, the things that will actually make you happy, then you also have to do something decisive. And so for you, uh, maybe that means downsizing. Maybe you need to consider that. And that could mean your house, or that just could mean your lifestyle. Maybe the lifestyle that you're living is too big for you to manage. The house that you're living in is too much to take care of, and you're spending all of your time and effort maintaining it, fixing it up, trying to keep it up. And maybe that's just a picture of your life, that, that we live these supersized lives. And yet there's something about simplicity, isn't there? Because in simplicity, in simplicity, there's room, there's room for the things that really matter. See, maybe the definitive, decisive thing you need to do is you need to say, we're downsizing. If you're here with your spouse, talk about it on the way home. Maybe we don't need everything that we have. In fact, maybe by making room in our life, getting rid of some of our possessions, we can make room for things that really matter. Or maybe it's not downsizing for you. Maybe it's just stopping the upgrade cycle. You know the upgrade cycle, right? If you don't know the upgrade cycle, you, you don't realize that you were on this treadmill called the upgrade cycle. Every couple of years, right, you can get a new phone, so I guess I better. And every couple of years, you know, as soon as you pay off the one car, um, you, what do you do? You, you, you get another one. And every couple of years, as soon as you make a little bit more money and your mortgage payment starts to get comfortable for you, what do you do? You sell the house and you get another house that's too expensive that makes you uncomfortable again, right? But it's bigger and it's better. That's, that's the upgrade cycle. And uh, maybe for you, the decisive action you need to take is you need to say, we're driving a stake. 
We're done with the upgrade cycle. We're not going to keep chasing after more and better all the time. We're going, to, we're going to draw a boundary around our life and the things that we have. And if we move, fine. We're going to move to a house that is, is no more expensive than the one we live in. We're going to stop, you know, looking up as, as if we're just trying to climb that hill. And uh, that phone that I have, I'm going to use it until it doesn't work anymore. And that car, I'm going to drive it until it dies, until it's too expensive to fix it. And then I'll get a new one and then I'll do the same. I'm going to stop adding to the boundaries of my life and taking more territory. I'm just going to draw a line around my life materially and say, this is enough. And so what I'll do now is I'll steward the things that I have. If something breaks, I'll replace it even. But I'm going to stop adding. Maybe that's something that you need to do. It would be decisive. It would be bold. People will think you're crazy if you're driving an old car and using an old phone and living in that same house with all the money you make, right? But maybe that's the way for you to discover greater things in your life. Third, uh, maybe you just need to start giving your money away. Right? Zacchaeus just said half. And I think in giving away, what he discovered was, was the power of relationships. See, see, there's something powerful. There's this instinct inside of us that says, no, 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 no. You, you got to hold on to your stuff. You don't have enough. You don't have enough money. You're going to run out, right? There's this scarcity voice in our head. We talked about this last week. This scarcity voice in our head constantly saying, you're going to run out. There's not going to be enough. You're going to be in trouble. And I think one of the most powerful things we can do to, to, to just rebel against that voice is to give money away. Is to say, you don't own me, voice, right? I, I don't work for you. I'm, I'm just going to give money away. It is, it, is, it is seditious. It is rebellious. But it's powerful. I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons that my wife and I continue to tithe. We give 10% of our income away. Because as we give money away, it's, it's a way just to say, no, no, no. We're not, we're not going to fall victim to fear. We're not, we're not going to just keep feeding into ourselves and our families over and over again. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give our resources to, to people and things that matter. We're going to invest in this church and what it's doing in this community because it's doing life-changing things. And we're going to invest in relationships with people and we're going to invest in, in partnerships like in College Hill and other places. And, and I'll tell you what, the satisfaction that that gives us, I know, is so much greater than the two really nice cars that we could be driving and whatever else we could be doing if we kept that money for ourselves. It, it, it's, it's so obvious. Do you know how long a car will make you happy? A new car? Scientifically, about two months. And so will the phone, and so will the house. And then guess what? You've got like, you know, 29 years of house payments still after that in something that doesn't even make you happy anymore. But there is a way that you can use your money by giving it away that you not only break the hold of materialism, but you also begin to invest in things that are truly satisfying. See, I think that's what it was for Zacchaeus. He gave half of his money away. He did something decisive. There was another uh, rich young man with Jesus, and uh, he came up to Jesus one day, and he said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want what you have. And Jesus said, the problem is your hands are full, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. Then there'll be room in your life to take hold of this. And in that case, the rich guy went away sad and said, no way, I can't do that because this stuff matters to me too much. And Jesus just shook his head and he says, you're missing it. See, I don't know anyone who has incrementally defeated materialism in their life. I don't think you can do it incrementally. I think it takes decisive action. And again, I'm not here telling you what to do. I'm just telling you that if you want to dump materialism in your life, if you see it as a problem, if you see how it's keeping you from the greater things, if, if you can agree with the data that says the stuff in your life isn't actually making you happy, if you can agree with that, then the way you get out from underneath that is you do something decisive. 
And here's why it's worth it. Because the same thing that Zacchaeus discovered, you will also discover, I promise you, that even though Zacchaeus at the end of the day was, was half as wealthy, I guarantee you that his life was 10 times fuller because he had found things that truly satisfy a relationship with God and a relationship with other people. He got rid of the thing in his life that was isolating him. See, look at how Jesus concludes this encounter with a simple affirmation. He says, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He's a son of promise. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, Jesus is saying, that's why I came, to to help a bunch of people who are lost and confused about life to find their way again. Now, what Jesus is not saying is, hey, Zacchaeus, since you gave half your money away, you get to go to heaven someday. No, that's wrong. See, what God wants to give you is absolutely free. It's nothing that you can pay for. It's nothing you can earn. Again, that's what the Reformation was about. It was saying, no way. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came and he gave his life. It's a gift. And so now we can have a relationship with God free of charge. There's nothing we can do to earn it or buy it. It's God's gift to us. So what Jesus is not saying is, hey, if you want to go to heaven someday, you've got to give half your money away. No. But I think what Jesus is affirming is that Zacchaeus has made a wise decision. He's gotten rid of the things. He's made room in his life so that he can truly take hold of the better things. When Jesus says salvation has come to this house, he's not saying, hey, someday, Zacchaeus, when you die, you get to go to heaven, although that's also true. What Jesus is saying is, is today, Zacchaeus, you found a fuller way of living. You found wholeness. You found something that will satisfy and bring contentment to your being. Today, salvation, my fullness has come to you because you finally get it. It's not about the stuff in your life. It's about a relationship. First and foremost with Jesus, but then also with each other. Now again, this is, this is so obvious. And yet I'll tell you, even though it's obvious, and even though I'm sitting here telling you it with such conviction, conviction and passion, and I believe it, it doesn't take the struggle away. See, I think back in my life, and, and I think about some of my favorite memories with my wife. I think about the time when we were first married and we had no money and we were SEM students and we were broke and, and we couldn't go out to eat, but what we would do is we would pack picnics and we'd just go find some beautiful spot in St. Louis and there are many of them and we'd uh, share a meal together and the food wasn't that incredible, but the time together was. And nowadays I, I make a lot more money because, you know, more than zero is easy to do. Um, and so I make a lot more money. And so we can afford to go out to eat. And that's what we do often, right? We go out to eat and, and we'll spend a significant amount of money on a good meal. And there's some great meals and there's some so-so meals. And, and deep down, I just, I think none of this is as good as those days when the food wasn't the point, when time together was. Or I look at my kids and I, like you who are parents, I want to give my kids good things. And, and so I buy them stuff so their lives will be comfortable. And so they've got scooters and bikes and all the, all the outdoor stuff. And they've got electronics and they've got comfortable rooms. They, they have all that stuff. And I watch as most of that doesn't really do anything. It doesn't make them happy. But here's what I've discovered, that, that occasionally something hits. A, a couple of summers ago, we got our kids a trampoline. It was my wife's idea, not mine. I'm like, it's an eyesore and we're going to be paying out all this money on deductibles in the ER. And 
Thankfully, that's not been the case yet. But here's what I've discovered is that that trampoline was a hit. It was a good purchase. It was a thing that added to our life. But here's why. Because my kid's favorite thing to do on that trampoline is to drag me out there on weekends and make me jump with them. They love it. See, it's not about the toy. It's about the time together. And uh, if you ask my kids today, what would they love to do this afternoon after church more than anything, what they'd probably tell you is uh, we'd love to go to Starbucks and, you know, our dad will get us a, a hot chocolate. It costs a $1.20 and we'll sit at a table and play games. We'll get a piece of paper and a pen and we'll play tic-tac-toe for an hour and it'll be the highlight of our weekend. Right? How little does it cost to invest in a relationship? But how valuable is it really? See, today God is begging you to make room in your life for the things that he wants to give you, the things that only he can give you, the things that truly satisfy, the things that truly bring contentment. In order to do that, we've got to deal with this materialism that plagues all of us, and I believe it takes decisive action. But when you do, when you make room for the things that God alone can give you through a relationship with himself. When you use your possessions, and there is a way to use your possessions to invest in relationships and to build relationships over spending our money on things that actually divide us and separate us and isolate us. There's a way to do that. When you do that, when you make your possessions work toward a greater end, you too will uncover contentment. Please stand with me. In the book of Hebrews, there is a a really wise scripture. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right now, I want you to pray with me this prayer of confession. God, our Father, we often get swept up in the pursuit of stuff and by doing so, lose sight of the essential. We chase after things we believe will enhance our lives, but we end up distracted from what we need most, a connection with you and each other. Father, we confess our sin before you. Forgive us and lead us to that which truly satisfies. In Jesus, amen.